I've chosen to read from John chapter 18. Uh, All four Gospels describe the story, the narrative of the sufferings and crucifixion and death of Jesus. Um, And so it's always a challenge on which one to uh, pick on such an occasion. Um, But I've landed on uh, John chapter 18 and 19, and there'll be certain selected verses uh, that we'll read uh, through that. Uh, So we'll start with verse 19. John chapter 18, verse 19. Uh, Picking up uh, the setting here, Jesus has been arrested, and he already was at Annas' house, who is father-in-law to Caiaphas, the high priest, and then he is now at the high priest's home, uh, dwelling place. Verse 19. The high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whither the Jews always resort. And in secret have I said nothing. Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me, which have said unto them, what I have said unto them. Behold, they know what I said. And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? Now Annas had sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. They said, therefore, to him, Art not thou also one of his disciples? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, being his kinsman, whose ear Peter cut off, saith, Did not I see thee in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately the cock crew. Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment. And it was early, and they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. We'll pause reading here at this moment. Just consider the irony of this statement here. They're leading an innocent man to death and accusing him with false accusation, um, but they want to keep themselves ceremonially pure by not entering a Gentile hall of judgment so that they could eat the Passover undefiled. Indeed, how undefiled really were they? Verse 29, continuing on. Pilate then went out unto them. And so Pilate's going back and forth uh, to them. Um, because they're not coming in. If he were not a male factor, which means criminal, we would not have delivered him up unto thee. Then said Pilate unto them, Take ye him and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake, signifying what death he should die. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again, and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is not my kingdom from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? 
Jesus answered, Thou sayest, I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews, and said unto them, I find in him no fault at all. But ye have a custom that I should release unto you one at the Passover. Will ye therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? They cried. Then cried they all again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Continuing on to the next chapter. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. That's a very terrible whipping. And the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they smote him with their hands. Pilate therefore went forth again and said unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you that ye may know I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate saith unto him, Unto them, Behold the man. When the chief priests, therefore, and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. You can see how Pilate is struggling here, as he is the, supposed to be the executor of justice here, but he's struggling with the pressure of the crowd. And Jesus answered him, We have a law. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid. And he went again into the judgment hall and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then said Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldest have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore, he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Pause for a moment here. Consider the irony of this statement as well. They were all of this time rejecting the authority of Rome in their hearts, uh, resisting it, resenting it. But now, they, when it seemed convenient at this moment to have Jesus crucified, they make this statement, we have no king but Caesar. 
Continuing on with verse 16. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull. Which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha. Where they crucified him and two other with him on the other side. On either side, one and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Let's pick up at verse 25 here. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he said unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then said he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now there was a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the bodies should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was a high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and brake the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they brake not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bare record, and his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. We'll stop our reading here. This verse here that John, as John recorded this gospel, being present for these events, being an eyewitness and how he culminates this in his final statement here that we have stopped uh, reading, is that he that saw it, John speaking of himself, bear record and that his record is true, that ye might believe. This is the whole point here of preaching the word and looking in the word and reflecting on what Jesus has done is to build faith in us that we might believe. This is the whole point of John's gospel, because in the next chapter, he says the same thing here. As he showed himself to Thomas after his resurrection, he said, These are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. There is great significance and great benefit in believing who Jesus is. God come in the flesh to bear our sins and to reconcile us back to the Father that we might have life through his name. At the beginning, when I read the hymn, one of the statements was to ponder on his words and his exceeding woe. 
That's what we're going to do this morning. Ponder on the words of Jesus. There's a number of significant statements that he had made, as well as his exceeding woe. Woe means great pain and distress in suffering and in sorrow. And we'll look at different aspects of his suffering uh, this morning. One of the words that Jesus spoke was in the hall of judgment at Pilate when he said in uh, John chapter 18, verse 37, To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Jesus' purpose for coming was to bear witness of the truth. Now, truth is something that is very much uh, debated, and in our postmodern world, or maybe there's another title for it, uh, relativism, uh, that that is uh, debated, that even whether truth even exists, or it's only a temporary construct from a particular perspective, and it's up for debate. Uh, Jesus gives us a very different message. The entire Word of God gives us a different message, that there is an absolute truth, and that is what matches up to reality. Reality in every form, uh, physical reality, um, the reality of what, how the world works, uh, what that which is right and wrong, the reality of morality, the reality of the human condition, the reality of what the solution is to the human condition, the fact that we need a solution to the human condition. And of course, in a time such as this, the reality and truth about the pandemic of COVID-19 and how different worldviews describe it in different forms, different ways. Um, the atheist would describe it that it's just random, meaningless chance. Uh, this is what happens in a random, meaningless, purposeless, hopeless world, a world that offers no hope. Uh, other world religions would describe it in terms of uh, the angry powers that be, perhaps, or the gods that need to be appeased and they're pouring out their wrath upon mankind or something like that. Uh, various descriptions. Um, those that would believe in, in karma and reincarnation would, would say that, well, a certain amount of suffering has to happen because in a previous life, um, we were bad people. And this suffering helps atone for that. And when one suffers somewhat in this life, then the next re- level of reincarnation, the next cycle, they turn into something better and more uh, more beautiful. The Bible doesn't speak of it in these terms. These are false religions and false ideas and ideas that offer no real hope and don't match up to the reality of God creating us and reaching down to us in terms of reconciliation. And so the question for you is, as Jesus said here, everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Will you hear his voice this morning calling out to you, meeting you in your place of need? Whatever level of suffering or distress or difficulty or uncertainty or anxiousness that you may have, Jesus speaks into that and offers a solution and hope and meaning and purpose, even in this time. He entered our temporal story so that we could enter his eternal story. This is the marvel of the incarnation of the revealed word of God as God stepped into time and space to participate in the difficult world that we are in so that he became the way for us to be with him in eternity. 
And so much more than just facts um, or theological ideas or religious ideas or propositional truths here, uh, those are all true. Uh, the Bible has many of that. But much more than that is we are invited to know him personally, meaningful, personal relationship as he offers us a new identity by rebirth and by the imagery of adoption. The question, of course, of suffering is often asked, especially during times when we are suffering or experience pain, why does it have to be so? And it may raise questions against the nature of God. If God is good, then why would he allow suffering? Or if he's all-powerful, why doesn't he do something about it? And the Bible gives answers to those questions because God is both good and loving and all-powerful. And he has done something about it and is doing something about it. As the scriptures describe that we are in a world broken by sin. And so it's not God's fault that we are in a state of suffering and that things are broken as, as a result of sin, separation from the Father. That separation in one form or another eventually causes pain, which gets our attention. There's no experience in human life that gets more urgent attention than pain. And God has designed it so to get our attention. But the fact that's wonderful about God is that he's not distant in our pain, saying, oh, too bad, you suffering humans. Eventually it'll get better. He entered into our suffering through Jesus Christ. And so every detail of suffering that has ever gone on, he knows it intimately. Suffering as a result of a sinful, fallen world. Sin is primarily an issue of identity. And identity was primarily the issue of why Jesus was on the cross. We will look at that in a moment. Thinking in terms of sin, not just in terms of behavior or wrong thinking, but in terms of identity, as we have a broken relationship with the Father. And that brokenness extends into every aspect of life. As we think of what's happening in the physical world, things don't last forever. They break down, they decay, they rust, they rot, they fall apart. Things need maintaining, otherwise they don't work anymore. That's part of the fall. Things decay and break down. There's the biological brokenness, which we're very much familiar with now, that has the viruses and the sickness and death. That's part of what sin has caused. There's the brokenness in nature, as beautiful as nature is, yet there are things that don't work right. And there's thorns and thistles. Specifically, God identified that is what will grow as a result of sin, as he talked to Adam and Eve in the garden about that. There's, and then there's the aspects that are a little more difficult to describe, that of emotional and spiritual brokenness, that of relational brokenness, which we all feel in a certain sense and see sometimes in very traumatic, um, tragic ways, that of the pain and brokenness of divorce or abuse in relationships and so forth, or even in highly functioning relationships, yet sometimes things don't quite work right as there's misunderstandings. And there's uh, failed expectations and, and false expectations and unrealistic expectations and so forth in uh, all of that, in ways of being dysfunctional, not working quite right, um, or not thinking quite right, or having false guilt and so forth. All of these things are the result of a broken relationship with the Father. Jesus Christ 
took upon himself all of these things and speaks reconciliation and hope and meaning into these things on the cross. The cross was an expression of love. John 3.16, we know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. As I was meditating on this, uh, there was a number of themes that came to mind during this uh, time of suffering of Jesus Christ. And these are some of what contrasting themes that are woven together that meet at the cross. Think about it. The themes of hatred and love, punishment and mercy and forgiveness, the theme of pain and healing, the theme of exile and restoration, that of broken relationships and reconciled relationship, that of conflict and war compared to that of peace. Psalm 85 describes it as mercy and truth are met together, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. It's marvelous what Jesus has done in this expression of love on the cross. Lots of things took place on the cross, and we won't be able to exhaust it all, of course. But one of them Jesus describes here in John chapter 15, verse 13. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. He's speaking to his 12 disciples here. He laid down his life for his friends. And not only for his friends, for his enemies as well. Amazing what he has done. Another verse that comes to mind, 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 18 and 19. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, this means not considering our sins against him. God was in Christ on the cross, reconciling the world unto himself. The tremendous expression of love. And that's what's the powerful thing about love. Being loved heals and brings about healing in relationships and everything that touches that. Let's look at uh, three aspects of Jesus' suffering. Not merely the physical suffering of which we hear about from time to time, as that is tremendous and gruesome, but think of it beyond the physical suffering, the emotional and spiritual suffering that uh, we have maybe a sense of. The physical suffering, shall we say, is probably more easy for us to grasp and easier to describe, but think of it in terms of the emotional and spiritual suffering, bearing the weight of our sin. The weight of all of the sin of the whole world that had ever been committed up until that point and all of the future sins that would be committed after his crucifixion. The guilt, the suffering, the, the bearing the sin of the abuser and the pain of the abused. Those that are hurt by uh, unjust means those that fail to execute justice, 
He feels all of those things as he identifies with the perpetrator of the crime and the victim of the crime and offers healing and reconciliation and life to both in every situation. One of the songs uh, that uh, will be played uh, later on, I think on Sunday, uh, has this phrase, the just for the unjust has died on the tree. And that, that phrase just strikes me so, so powerfully that it's just, it, it describes how Jesus, the perfect man, just, innocent, as Pilate recognized it and struggled to release him and went back and forth declaring numerous times that he is innocent, but yet forced in a sense by the pressure of the people and uh, wanting to maintain his political um, position, had to continue on and have him crucified. Of course, this was the means by which God used to bring about reconciliation to the world. Crucifixion was God's idea. The just for the unjust has died on the tree. So the three areas of suffering that we'll look at. We'll look at the suffering in the garden. This was not physical suffering now. This was sort of, this was emotional and painful uh, in its own way. As Jesus described in the garden, uh, if we, if you want to follow with me, we're going to Matthew chapter 26. Uh, in the garden, it's recorded here. As he's praying with his disciples, his disciples are tired. This is now Thursday evening after the Passover. He goes to the garden. It's dark, uh, and he's praying, and he says, Oh, Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. He's surrendering to this eternal plan. He knew he was coming for this purpose, yet he was feeling the weight and the burden of this plan. This reminds me of a song uh, in our Zion's harp there as what he was suffering in the garden called Gethsemane. Behold, there in Gethsemane, the Lord feels death's great agony within his inmost soul. See how he to his knees doth sink, bitter the cup, yet he doth drink. Behold, to earth he falleth there. The Holy One must burdens bear of overwhelming woe. Yet hear him pray, submissive still. Not mine, but let thy, let be done thy will. We see this tremendous uh, expression of love because of what the cross would accomplish for us. This is heightened, in a sense, when his disciples try to use physical means to defend him, and he puts that aside. And he says, Don't you know that there are more than 12 legions of angels that I could call on and be rescued from this? But then, how would the Scriptures be fulfilled? He is choosing to go through with this plan. The suffering in the garden. In a sense, that's where the trajectory um, uh, took place. Of course, his entire life was that of one of sacrifice and giving and loving and showing and teaching the way. 
But there was a tremendous amount of, shall we say, a watershed moment in the garden where he then finally, where he submits to this plan uh, for certain. Then there's the suffering in the trial. We have read about it, um, the various false accusations that were made uh, against him. And how they struggled to bring accusations against him. The other Gospels record some of this in more detail. Uh, this struggle and difficulty <coughs> that they had. Because he was innocent. And it was difficult to find charge that would stick. And witnesses that would agree with one another. But they finally found something that they considered worthy of death. And it wasn't anything that he had done, but it was his identity. You remember at the beginning, I had earlier, I talked about his identity was key here. And the high priest, as he's questioning him, and this is recorded in Mark chapter 14, verse 61, he held his peace and answers nothing. Again, the high priest asked him and said, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes and said, What need we any further witnesses? You have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. Jesus knew this would condemn him in their eyes, his identity. And in a sense, he didn't answer any of the other questions they were all meaningless questions or questions that were of lesser significance. But when they asked him the most significant question, that was the whole point that he, of, of his ministry, pointing to his identity, that he is God come in the flesh. And then when they asked him that question point blank, he answered it, I am. In a sense, sealing his fate, his destiny. The suffering in the trial. Uh, another point about that um, is, uh, we'll turn to John chapter 19, we read it, is the type of suffering that he had in the trial, emotional suffering, in the sense of knowing who had the power. This was, a, a, shall we say, an upside-down trial. The king of kings, the god of the universe, on trial, being condemned by a worldly judge, how backwards is that? But yet, this was a form of delegated power where Jesus said to Pilate, as, as Pilate knew his power, and said, well, don't you, but he didn't know Jesus' power. And that's why he said to him, why aren't you answering me? Don't you know that I could deliver you or I could crucify you? You are in my hands. And Jesus says these words, you could have no power at all against me except it were given from above. And so Jesus identified this aspect that Pilate was given, delegated a measure of authority for this purpose. And so in that sense, it was suffering for Jesus to submit himself to this unjust delegated authority, or the authority acting unjustly, yet to fulfill the purpose of our salvation. As we think of the things that he had bore, bearing that for us. And then we have the suffering on the cross. The Gospel of Luke uh, records some details. Luke being a physician, a doctor, so certainly he would um, t 
tune in to those details so that we can understand that. The suffering, as we look at Luke 23, chapter, uh, Luke 23, verse 34. And again, beyond physical suffering, the emotional pain that he's bearing, as he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How much did they know what they were doing? There was multiple levels of things happening here. They knew very much that they were crucifying a man that was innocent. But did they know the depth of what they were doing in the sense of fulfilling God's plan of salvation? And the very words that Jesus was offering here, forgive them, offering forgiveness to the very people that were crucifying him. Just think through that in depth here. As Jesus is bearing your sin and my sin and the sin of the whole world, he is bearing not only the pain of that and the physical pain of that, but the very fact of the guilt of the crucifiers. As maybe later on, some of them may have realized what they have done and participated in. Jesus bore that for them also at the same time. Demonstrating his mercy to those who repent, as we have the story of the criminals, one on either side, and Luke records that conversation as one of the criminals insult him just like the others. But the other answering rebukes him, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? We indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Offering forgiveness, even in the midst of that devastating pain. This speaks to the message of repentance and faith. This thief on the cross deserved to die. Jesus offered him forgiveness on the basis of his confession and repentance as he realized he was the Son of God crucified next to him. Is there someone here online that is in need of this measure of salvation? I urge you, believe. Remember the point of this, John's gospel, is to believe. Faith is the main point. Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith that you need uh, reconciliation. Faith in believing God's verdict, the reality, the truth about your life and your situation, and the distance that you have from God and the brokenness that you experience because of your own sin and because of the sin all around you. Believe. That he is the solution. And as he reaches out to you to offer forgiveness, respond with repentance and faith, saying, God, Jesus, I have sinned. Please forgive me. Moving on to John. Back to our reading in John chapter 19. Jesus says, I thirst. Now think of the irony of this. I thirst. He is, he described himself as the living water. Whosoever drinketh this water, as he's talking to the woman at the well, and asks for a drink and uses that as a point of conversation to speak about the eternal springs of living water, 
that come from Him and that come from everyone that follows Him because He is the source of life. I thirst. This connects to blood and water pouring out of Him on the cross, um, which we read right near the end here. One of the soldiers, when they pierce His side, comes out blood and water, symbolic for our salvation. Water, that of the cleansing of the water of life, uh, symbolic to baptism, symbolic to the water, the washing of the water by the word. There's numerous imagery here in these things. And then, of course, his blood being the atonement for our sins and the cleansing agent uh, for us. <clears throat> Jesus crying with a loud voice, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Perhaps this was the greatest pain, that of separation that of alienation, that of isolation. And many are feeling during this time the pain of isolation because we were built for relationship. And when that relationship is denied or not possible or not functioning or broken in some way, that is painful. And Jesus experienced that pain in this expression of agony as he feels the separation from the Father as he has taken all of our sin. Another saying of Jesus on the cross, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And also, it is finished. And he bows his head and gives up the ghost. We had read that here in verse 30. Did anyone take Jesus' life? Was it violently taken? This whole crucifixion was an act of violence. That was one of the uh, contrasting themes of the cross. Violence and hatred and cruelty, yet Peace and love and forgiveness uh, in that. Jesus said in John ten eighteen, when he's talking, foretelling of his death, he says, no man takes it from me. I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. This demonstration of love and power, the power of love, transcends anything beyond our understanding. And so in closing, I'd like to read some verses of this song. There is power in the blood. And this power is available to everyone who believes and trusts in Jesus. So whatever point you are at in life, let's reflect and ponder on the words of Jesus, of what he has said, and the power that is available to you as well. Would you be free from your burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Would you over evil a victory win? There is wonderful power in the blood. Would you be free from your passion and pride? There's power in the blood. Come for a cleansing to Calvary's tide. There's wonderful power in the blood. Would you be whiter, much whiter than snow? There's power in the blood. Sin stains are lost in its life-giving flow. There's wonderful power in the blood. Would you do service for Jesus, your King? There's power in the blood. Would you live daily his praises to sing? There's power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. There is power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. May we surrender ourselves to this power 
to this loving power.